This podcast may contain unsuitable language, depictions of adult themes, and content of a violent and distressing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is Crime Trials, Episode 2, Part 1, a show that focuses on the stories behind the crimes as they work their way through our criminal justice system, from tragedy to verdict. When we hear the words femme fatale, we often imagine a temptress or seductress who is so alluring she can lead ordinary men to ruin, someone incapable of love or intimacy, someone who is amazing at seduction, only offering her body but never her heart, a woman with both beauty and intelligence. What we may not imagine when we think of femme fatale is a petite young single mother with a blonde pixie cut that matches her delicate features. Lindley Rennick was far from a femme fatale upon presentation, but in reality she matched the definition down to the very last detail. A woman with both intelligence and sex appeal, who used those skills to manipulate poor helpless men into doing what she wanted maybe even murder. In that respect, Lindley Rennick was a textbook femme fatale. As a teenager, Lindley Rennick suffered from an eating disorder, which would eventually lead to her interest in the health and wellness field. She decided she wanted to heal with her hands and enrolled in a massage therapy program. Just as she was about to graduate from the program, she found out the night before her state exam that she was unexpectedly pregnant. Her and the father-to-be were scared, but also excited. That excitement abruptly ended when the father of her baby was at fault in a fatal car accident which resulted in him going to prison. Suddenly, Lindley found herself alone with a child to support. After dating a series of unsuitable men, from meth addicts to alcoholics, Lindley set out to find a quality man who could help her raise and care for her son. That man would turn out to be someone she previously knew from high school, a man named Ben Rennick. A man she would describe as nice and without sex appeal. In fact, their lack of sexual chemistry was considered a plus by Lindley. She felt sexually exploited by men in the past, so Ben was a welcome change. For once in her life, she felt like a man wanted more from her than just her body. But later, their lack of sexual chemistry would become a problem. You know, the foundation of Ben and I's relationship and what I really loved about him in the beginning was that I felt like I wasn't just a body to him. Um, and I thought that you know, we didn't have a wild sexual relationship. We didn't have, you know, intercourse a lot, but I thought that it was healthy. And that just put me right back to this place of feeling like I was just there for him to have sex with. While their relationship was never based on passion, Lindley would later state one of the things she loved about Ben was how committed he was to her and her son. 
and he was committed. He treated Matthew as his own from the moment they first met, reading books to him until he fell asleep, as if he was always meant to be Matthew's father. Matthew felt the same way and idolized Ben, calling him dad and following him around. Ben repeatedly tried to adopt Matthew, but even though he was never able to make it official, he still added Matthew to his family trust. A trust first created by Ben's own father, who ran a billion-dollar pet food company called Spectrum Pets. Ben had experienced quite a bit of loss in his personal life before he began dating Lindley. His mother died in 2008, and his father killed himself on Father's Day, 2012, to avoid dealing with a multi-charge federal indictment for defrauding investors out of millions of dollars. Despite Ben's deep losses, he was ready to create a family of his own to replace the one he had lost. He was fully committed to becoming a parent to Lindley's son from the first day they met. As was Lindley's pattern, just a few months later, Lindley was pregnant again with her and Ben's daughter, Amelia. Once Amelia arrived, Ben continued to be the father Lindley was hoping to give to her son and now daughter. By all accounts, he was kind, gentle, supportive, and loving. Ben was the complete opposite of the men she had dated in the past. He didn't just win over Matthew and Lindley. He won over all of her friends and her entire family. Everyone loved Ben and universally described him as smart, sweet, sincere, and trustworthy. Most of all, they knew he loved and supported Lindley the way she had longed for. In 2014, when Amelia was just two years old, Ben and Lindley officially got married and began the life Lindley was so sure she wanted at the time. Ben reveled in being a father to both of his children, and he loved the family he and Lindley created and the life he was able to give them. And it was a great life, not just filled with love, but filled with success. They were a happy couple, with an idyllic life, with a million-dollar business that Ben created out of hard work and passion in the field of breeding rare reptiles. Ben had a fascination with snakes, not the femme fatale kind, although perhaps that kind too. Ben was an expert in the field of breeding rare snake species. He became an expert on the genetics of snakes, and was able to create and breed many rare types of albino snakes and snakes with rare flame patterns. There are countless interviews on YouTube with Ben where he discusses his passion and expertise for successfully creating and breeding rare snakes. He was a sought-after expert in his field. He and Lindley would go to reptile conferences where people came from across the country to talk to Ben about his expertise. Ben was world-renowned and considered a titan in the industry. How do you think you became so successful? What, what, do you think there's some, some kind of formula? I'm obviously, you're a very meticulous guy. I'm very meticulous. Um, I think success is, in this, especially in this industry, I mean, it's going to be a mixture of a lot of different things. So, I mean, it's a mixture of, like, customer service, how you handle situations. You know, you're obviously going to have to make nice things. 
like no matter what, you're gonna have to produce some nice animals. And you're gonna have to care, you know what I mean? Like you're gonna have to like, don't just throw everything together and try to make snakes. Like you have to actually like, I spend months working on breeding plans and I pick every single animal that I'm gonna pair up. And like, I'm really meticulous about what I pair up. I only wanna make the nicest expressions that I can of every single animal. You're not just gonna throw animals together just to make some babies. not just gonna throw animals together and just make some babies. I'm gonna really, really make an effort on what I do. It's what I do for a living, you know? It's what I love doing and I take pride in that. So, you know, I take pride in my entire company. A lot of it's, you know, I have really great customers too. I have fantastic customers. They love buying snakes from me and I love dealing with, I love working with people. And then a lot of it's gonna come from, you know, like I sell healthy animals. So that's something that, you know, it's really important. If an animal's having trouble, it's not going out your door. It's not going out the door, no. One of the key elements of Ben's business was that he did everything himself, and he included Lindley in that process, training her on how to properly care for the snakes and put her in charge of customer orders. When Ben's father died, he left his 72-acre property to Ben, which had several homes on it, one where he and Lindley lived and one where his brother Sam Rennick lived and one for Ben's commercial breeding operation. A facility where he housed thousands and thousands of snakes. Ben had become so well-known in his field that he had attracted a famous snake enthusiast to invest in his business. Robin Leinher was a professional NHL hockey player and had purchased many of Ben's rare snakes in the past. In 2017, he invested in Ben's business buying half of his commercial operations, which included all of the rarer breeds in a structured sale for $1.2 million. Ben had already received the first $250,000 installment of their agreement. At the time of the sale, Lindley was no longer content working with Ben in the snake breeding business. Having a loving husband, provider, and father to their two children wasn't keeping Lindley personally satisfied and as happy as she had imagined. While she no longer struggled to support herself or her son, she missed some of the reckless elements of her old life. Lindley wanted away from her happy family, and repeatedly suggested she go back to work as a massage therapist. To Ben, it didn't make sense to have Lindley work outside of the home, especially because she had become so helpful with his business. In contrast, what Lindley really wanted was time away from the family she had thought would lead to personal fulfillment. She longed to add some independence and excitement back into her life, and away from the daily mundane of caring for her children. However, Ben pointed out it didn't financially make sense for her to return to the workforce, as any money she would make wouldn't even cover the cost of childcare. She was much more valuable at home with their million-dollar business. Lindley had a better idea than just going back to work. She wanted her own successful million-dollar business. She proposed opening a wellness spa, where she would have enough people working for her to make it worth her while to return back to work. Of course, she would need Ben to borrow funds from his family trust to fund this endeavor. Ben had a habit of taking money from the trust when needed, and always returning it later when he no longer needed it. This actually violated the terms of the trust, and would later become a loophole that Lindley would take advantage of. In the meantime, to make his wife happy, 
Ben took Lindley to his financial planner, and they put together a business proposal. Ben funded the spa with the belief that it would be self-sustaining within a certain period of time, and would pay back his family trust, of which Matthew and Amelia were now the sole beneficiaries. The cost of building the spa ran over Lindley's budget, and left her without a cushion to fund the business. As a result, the money the business did make didn't cover her overhead. When Ben was contacted by the landlord, he was upset to find out that Lindley hadn't been paying the rent, nor was she communicating with him the dire financial condition of the spa. There was a short-term solution to some of her financial problems. Ben had many valuable snakes worth millions and millions of dollars. Some of his rarer breeds sold for over $50,000 apiece, with the average being worth several thousand dollars. Each month, Lindley ran short on money for the spa. She would sell one of the rare snakes and would cover the cost. The problem with that was once Robin Leinher had invested in Ben's business, he owned all of the rare snakes that Lindley had been selling to cover her monthly business shortfalls. There were also thousands of dollars in creditors that Ben didn't know about yet. The spa would ultimately lead to the downfall of Ben, Lindley, and many others who were entangled in Lindley's helpless web of charm. She was the ultimate snake charmer. Essentia Spa wasn't just Lindley's taste of freedom. It was where she charmed and seduced many people into crime and sin. It was also with the help of her friend, former co-worker, and current spa manager Ashley Shaw, she would coldly plan her husband's murder. On the afternoon of June 8th, 2017, Lindley would get a call from her children's school, stating that Ben had failed to pick them up. In a performance befitting an Oscar-worthy dramatic actress, Lindley would discover her husband's bloodied body in a hallway of his snake-breeding business. She would hysterically call his brother, Sam Rennick, who assumed Ben had been crushed by a large 500-pound python. It never occurred to him that his brother had been murdered. Next, she would attempt to call 911, too distraught to be understood. So distraught and so convincing, a 911 operator and an EMT would both swear under oath that Lindley couldn't have been faking her emotional breakdown a day where she would lay her head on the dead and bloody body of her husband, pretending to hear him breathe in a self-described catatonic state until a first responder gently removed her from the scene where she was taken to a waiting ambulance. Lindley wanted witnesses to her emotional state that day. Many witnesses. At first, there were no suspects in 29-year-old Ben Rennick's senseless and horrific murder. As soon as the medical examiner arrived, it was clear Ben wasn't crushed by a python. He was a homicide victim. He had been shot four times in the back at close range, and shot another four times point-blank in the face and chest. However, evidence found at the crime scene indicated Ben knew his killer because of where he was found, 
how he was killed, and the fact that nothing was stolen. When Ben's friends and family were asked about Lindley, no one suspected she was capable of being involved with Ben's death. They believed the two were happily married, although her actions immediately after his death had them quickly changing their minds. The next day, after Ben's death, Lindley, supposedly still in a catatonic state, had the wherewithal to file for the proceeds of his $1 million life insurance policy. Later, she would learn that unbeknownst to her, Ben had changed the beneficiary to his family trust, of which only Matthew and Amelia were the listed beneficiaries. But that wouldn't stop Lindley. After suing the life insurance company for the proceeds, she eventually settled and agreed to take nothing and allow it to be put in the trust for her children. She then applied to be what's known as a, quote, special friend, unquote, to the estate. It would give her full control of how to spend the money on her children's behalf, including their housing, transportation, and educational needs. Eventually, the court denied this lawsuit, too and provided each children with a guardian ad litem to control how their money is dispersed and spent. Lindley promptly had her attorney file a claim against the trust for $88,000 in reimbursement for attorney's fees from her children's trust fund. Again, that claim was denied, and only $11,000 was approved as it had to do with the children's guardian appointments. But Lindley wasn't done with filing lawsuits or making legal claims on money that didn't belong to her. Because Ben had a habit of returning community property assets to the family trust, Lindley sought to have it nullified on this ground since it violated the terms of the trust. The trust eventually settled with her, and returned all of the money to her that Ben had added to the trust during the period of their three-year marriage. That sum was undisclosed. Next, Lindley sold the 72-acre property where Sam and Ben Rennick were both raised all of their lives, and where Sam was still a resident for $800,000. In the days following Ben's murder, Lindley would do other bizarre things. She wouldn't allow Sam Rennick to view his brother's body, or even enter the funeral home, until she arrived and granted him permission to come inside. She also stopped all communication with Ben's family, and wouldn't allow them to see the children. To investigators, she was insinuating Sam may have had something to do with Ben's death, a fact she would share with police on multiple occasions. In fact, Lindley would be interviewed by investigators in Ben's death on six different occasions, always denying any involvement in Ben's death each time sharing her belief that Sam was somehow involved. To add insult to injury, Ben's family would discover on a Facebook post just six months after Ben's death that Lindley was expecting a baby with a man named Brandon Blackwell. And, true to form, Lindley went back to choosing the wrong men. In stark contrast to Ben, she chose a man who would terrorize and terrify her children. One such incident involved Lindley's son Maddie calling her father, Lindell Gallatin, asking for help for him and his mom. Did you ever have the occasion to call the police on Brandon Blackwell? Your Honor, I'm going to object. 
we've been through the, it is irrelevant. Jesse's overruled. Did you ever have the occasion to call the police on Brandon Blackwell? Yes, ma'am. Why was that? Because he would not let my daughter and my grandkids out of their house. He had them pinned. I was on the phone with my grandson, and he said, Papa, Brandon won't let us let Mama leave. Do I need to continue? Yes, please. So I was like, I'm going to call the sheriff's department. And he said, oh, it's okay. He's letting us leave now. And now, and then the next thing he says, well, now he's not. And about the third time he said he's not, I was like, I'm calling the police department right now. And uh, then I heard Maddie say, oh, no, we're, we're outside now. We're coming to your house, Papa. Police never believed that Sam Rennick was involved in his brother's murder. But they did continue to suspect Lindley's involvement. However, the case sat cold for two and a half years until the breakup of Lindley and Brandon's relationship. Brandon may not have been the good man that Ben Rennick was, but he would prove to be Lindley's undoing and the break the case had been waiting for. Police had discovered that Lindley had many affairs while she was married to Ben. Some even overlapped with each other. One such man was Brandon Blackwell, whom Lindley met on Ashley Madison, a website where married people can go to find other people interested in having discreet sexual encounters. During the good parts of their relationship, Lindley, who was less than discreet in many aspects of her life, shared with Brandon the two attempts she made on Ben's life. She shared the names of her co-conspirators with Brandon, and all the details of their sinister plot to kill her husband, and profit from his death. After their son Jackson was born, Lindley kicked Brandon out of her home, and took out a restraining order against him. It would be the violation of those restraining orders that led police to the names of Lindley's co-conspirators in Ben's murder. The plot would lead them to another ex-lover of Lindley's, by the name of Michael Humphrey. Thanks to Brandon Blackwell, investigators discovered there were two attempts made on Ben's life. Lindley initially planned to poison Ben, but instead of dying, he just got very sick. He even jokingly asked Lindley if she was trying to kill him. Plan B was to find a lover from Lindley's past with a criminal record and have him help her to kill her husband. Humphrey allegedly provided the gun, but told Lindley she would have to pull the trigger herself because he was concerned she might regret it later or try to blame him. Once police were able to corroborate Brandon Blackwell's allegations, Lindley Rennick and Michael Humphrey were both arrested for Ben Rennick's murder on January 16, 2020. Michael Humphrey would go to trial first and was quickly convicted of first-degree murder. In a post-conviction plea bargain, he agreed to testify truthfully against Lindley and provide the murder weapon in exchange for a reduced conviction to second-degree murder and a chance at life with parole. If you think Lindley's conviction is a foregone conclusion, you would be wrong. The prosecutor had a hard uphill battle against Lindley's fragile demeanor and ability to bring emotion to her voice at all the right times. 
During Lindley's trial, she had an answer for every piece of evidence and every witness against her. When she didn't have an answer, she had the convenience of a catatonic fugue state and friends who allegedly influenced her every decision. Lindley's trial started on December 6, 2021, and there would be quite a bit of evidence the jury wouldn't get to see. They weren't allowed the details on all those lawsuits she filed to gain Ben's life insurance proceeds, nor her many attempts to gain control over her children's trust funds. All trials start out with pre-trial motions, including motions in limine, where both sides, prosecution and defense, try to get evidence in front of the jury, or, in the defense's case, try to prevent the jury from hearing certain evidence. The judge has to weigh whether the evidence is so probative in value as to overcome whether it is too prejudicial against the defendant. Although it appeared money was a big motive in Lindley's desire to murder her husband, the jury would not be privy to most of the evidence that showed her greed and extraordinary efforts to gain control over Ben's family trust. The trial of the state of Missouri v. Lindley Rennick in the murder of 29-year-old Ben Rennick began on December 6, 2021, with both sides giving opening arguments. The prosecutor, Kelly King, began on behalf of the state, telling the jury that Lindley made multiple attempts on Ben's life. She also told the jury that while Ben was a world-renowned snake breeder, Lindley felt overlooked in his shadow. As soon as she opened her spa, she was unable to manage the finances. Her spa was bleeding money, and Ben was about to pull the plug on the spa and close it down. This would also limit Lindley's freedom and her ability to engage in her many extramarital affairs. Ultimately, Ben gave Lindley a few more months to make the spa successful before they either had to sell it or close it down. Lindley is also having an affair with an individual named Eric Brown. And that affair consists of the two of them having sex at the day spa. So Lindley, who's also the sole beneficiary of the $1 million life insurance policy on Ben Rennick, decides she's going to kill him. And she can't divorce him because Ben controls the money, and Ben has the money. And she thinks if she tries to divorce him, that he's going to keep her kids from her. So she doesn't want a divorce, she's going to kill him. And she enlists the help of a co-worker employee, Ashley Shaw. So her and Ashley come up with this plan to poison him. And the plan is that Lindley is going to blend up some pills in a protein shake. She's going to give it to Ben and tell Ben that a customer had brought this protein shake in for her to try. And so she's going to offer it to him to try this new protein shake. So Ashley does some research. She goes online to find out how many pills it takes to kill somebody. She actually gets 15 Percocet and gives them to Lindley. Lindley blends them up, puts them in the shake, gives it to Ben. Prosecutor King told the jury that when the pills didn't work, she and her co-worker Ashley Shaw came up with a plan to contact an old boyfriend of Lindley's who had been in and out of prison. When Lindley dated him, he was both a meth dealer and addict. For her purposes, she hoped nothing had changed. 
the Michael Humphrey she knew in the past would be the perfect person to help her kill Ben. She explained to the jury how Ashley and Lindley tracked down Michael Humphrey and told him that they tried to kill Ben and failed. They told Michael that Ben was abusive to Lindley. She couldn't divorce him because he controlled all of their money in a family trust, and he had been sexually abusing Lindley in her sleep. Michael wouldn't agree to kill Ben, but he did agree to provide her a gun to protect herself and went with her while she confronted and shot her husband. She told the jury that Michael came up to the spa a week later for a free massage and brought the gun with him, which he gave to Lindley for her protection. They ultimately decided they would go together a week later to kill Ben, while Ashley would stay at the spa with Lindley's phone establishing an alibi. Prosecutor King explained that there were four co-conspirators to Ben's murder. They were Lindley Rennick, Michael Humphrey, Ashley Shaw, and another spa employee by the name of Rachel Hunt. All four of them thought it was perfectly reasonable for Lindley to kill her husband rather than divorce him. She explained to the jury that they will hear from all of those witnesses to the conspiracy and regardless of any immunity deals or reduction in sentences. A condition of their deals is that they each tell the truth. She went on to tell them how Lindley spent the day of the murder, sending Ben nude photos of herself, and setting up a babysitter for a pretend date night. Her nudes were accompanied by flirty texts, telling Ben how excited she was to spend time with him later. That way, he would be completely caught off guard when she drove up later that day to murder him. During those messages, she also casually asked Ben when the rat supplier would be there so she could make sure there wouldn't be any witnesses around when they arrived. Although her day was jam-packed with an upcoming murder and an alibi to establish, she still managed to find time to text her two other current lovers with flirty messages. She certainly didn't want them to feel neglected, as she was about to have a lot of free time on her hands. At the time of Ben's murder, her lovers included Brandon Blackwell, whom she met on Ashley Madison website, and Eric Bramer, who was her advertising sales rep for the radio ads for her spa. There wasn't any testimony on whether that relationship resulted in a discount. She went on to tell the jury how the police discovered Michael Humphrey's name in Lindley's phone, which resulted in Lindley having Ashley Shaw call him to give him a heads up. Ashley reminded Michael Humphrey to keep his mouth shut. Prosecutor King told the jury that during the beginning of 2020, the police got a tip from Brandon Blackwell that Lindley was the shooter of her husband, along with Michael Humphrey. He also knew the names of her accomplices. This caused investigators to interview Ashley Shaw once again. King told the jury they will hear from Ashley Shaw, and they won't like Ashley Shaw. You're going to hear from Ashley Shaw, and you're not going to like Ashley Shaw. Ashley Shaw did some horrible things. She was completely complicit in this murder. But Ashley Shaw was the first one to talk, so Ashley Shaw got immunity. And she's going to come in and testify, and she's going to tell you what happened. But it was when they talked to Ashley Shaw that they found out, oh, those text messages where Ben says he's violently ill, he's not just sick, that's where his wife tried to poison him. 
And she, she tells him how when Michael Humphrey picked her up from the spa on the day of the murder, he didn't fill up his car with gas. And Lily was mad that he didn't put gas in his car, so she had to stop and get gas. Well, they find the receipt from her credit card corroborating what Ashley Shaw tells them. And once they find out that Ashley Shaw is telling the truth, now they've got a case against Lindley Rift. So she's going to testify. She'll tell you everything I just told you. And then a couple of weeks ago, Michael Humphrey decides he wants to cooperate. And I don't suspect you're going to like Michael Humphrey either because he's also complicit, complicit in this murder. Michael Humphrey is going to testify and tell you what happened. In exchange for that, instead of a life sentence without parole, he's going to be convicted of murder in the second degree and serve a life sentence with parole. She told the jury how Michael agreed to give up the murder weapon, which Lindley used to shoot Ben four times in the back and four times in the face and chest at point-blank range as he lay bleeding and dying, staring into the face of the woman he loved. Defense attorney Tim Hesseman, on behalf of Lindley Rennick, began his opening statements to the jury, telling them there was nothing more sad and tragic than someone being convicted of something they did not do. There is nothing more sad and more tragic than an innocent person being convicted of something they did not do. Lindley Rennick did not kill Ben Rennick. She did not know that Ben Rennick was going to be killed in that early summer day of June 8th. And she, believe me, she did not want Ben Rennick to be killed that day. Ben Rennick's death on June 8th was literally the furthest thing from Lenny Rennick's mind. Before Lenny Rennick was Lenny Rennick, she was Lenny Gallatin. And I think it's important for this case for you to understand the types of people that Lenley and Ben were, because Lenley's gonna make some decisions down the road, and that I think that you understand the kind of person she was back then will help you understand why she made those decisions. Not everybody's the same, not everybody reacts the same way um, to, to, to situations. He shared that Lindley was born just a small town girl from a small rural town called Wellsville, her father was an electrician, and her mother was a nurse. It was an ordinary family where Lindley was raised with her older sister, April. After graduating from high school in 2006, she didn't know what she wanted to do with her life, but she was extremely extroverted. She loved and needed to be surrounded by people. She was supportive and liked people supporting others almost to a fault. It was her sister, April, who suggested she try massage therapy school because it appealed to her social needs and her desire to help others. He explained to the jury what a difficult job it was because it involved going to school for a year and sitting for a state board exam. He told the jury how Lindley got pregnant young and had to put her dreams on hold to give birth to her son and raise him. Another thing you have to understand about Lindley Rennick, besides the fact she's very small, she's barely 100 pounds, and I think she's just over 5 feet tall, there is not a violent bone in Lindley Rennick's body. You are not going to hear one witness in this entire trial take the stand and point 
to a single violent thing prior to this false allegation that Lindley Rennick has ever done in her life. She's into Harry Potter books, she's into soap, she's into um, massage and that sort of thing. She is the least dangerous person that she is the furthest away from violence that a person can get. She has zero experience or zero proficiency with firearms. She's not interested in guns. She has never been, she may have held a gun once or twice in her life. She has zero ability with a gun. As we all know, a love for Harry Potter and soap precludes you from being capable of murder. Attorney Hesseman told the jury that Lindley Rennick's kids were the most important thing in her life. Even above her love for her spa, he explained that even the investigators during one of her interrogations told her that she loved her kids more than her spa. So the matter of loving her kids is clearly settled. Apparently, loving your children in Lindley's world means murdering their father for money, and when that plan fails, it means trying to legally control their inheritance. Hesseman went on to explain that in 2009, Lindley was enjoying a season of comfort with her new son. She had just escaped a toxic and abusive relationship with Michael Humphrey. He was a screw-up in life and a lazy loser. That's when she met Ben. Ben was, and it almost seems fated that these two exceptional people would find each other in such an ordinary place like Montgomery County, Missouri. To Lenley, Ben was an amazing, ambitious, accomplished genius. Ben was one of those people that was good at everything he tried. He, when he was a teenager, he was able to start a reptile company that was world-renowned. He was one of the best reptile breeders in the world. And doing what he did is not a hobby, it's not a gimmick. It takes tremendous ability to replicate the, um, the, uh, re replicate the habitats of these things in such a way that you can breed them and make money from them. Some of these reptiles also can sell for upwards of $50,000. And some of these reptiles weigh more, some of these snakes weigh more than 100 pounds. Lindley was impressed by Penn and found him interesting and creative. He found joy in successful accomplishments, and he and Lindley immediately became infatuated with each other. They quickly moved in together, and Lindley quit her job working as a massage therapist. She began working with Ben with his reptile breeding business. They were spending all of their time together, and this was just fine for Ben, because he was an introvert. But for Lindley, it was difficult. She was an extrovert who needed attention, interaction, and outside validation. One minute, they wanted to spend every minute together. And four years later, Lindley needed an escape from domestic bliss. Ben wanted to raise snakes, and Lindley wanted to be around people. Next, he explained to the jury that Ben died without a will, but he had a family trust. Since the motions in limine excluded the jury from knowing about Lindley's legal attempts to gain control of Ben's assets, and the money she gained from selling his house and settling with the trust, he was able to gloss over her motive of money. 
The trust document said Ben would get these assets. However, if he had a child or a descendant and Ben died, all of the trust assets would go to the descendant. So Lenly, as the spouse, because they had Amelia, was not going to get any of Ben's property and she was not going to get any of the trust money. Now, the insurance was, a, um, was taken out, but it's not clear whether or not the insurance policy was put into the trust. Once the insurance policy goes into the trust, now that insurance policy is going to Amelia. It's not going to Lemony Renner. And the police are even confused about this because the police will write in one of their, their, their police reports that this certain person, Chuck Thaw, was the trustee of the life insurance policy, which would have to mean that this life insurance policy was in the trust. And you're also gonna hear testimony that Lenny Winnick never tried to find out if she was getting this insurance, if she was getting this, this life insurance money. Afterwards, after Ben died, she didn't get any money. The only way she was able to sustain a living was by, um, new maneuverings and things like that that she never could have known about before before Ben died. What he didn't tell the jury was that the things she never could have known were that Ben transferred the $1 million life insurance proceeds into his family trust, where only Maddie and Amelia were the beneficiaries. He continued to tell the jury that tensions began to arise because Ben was after success, and Lindley was after affection. That's a big hurdle for most marriages to overcome, and Ben and Lindley were no different. Except Ben was under the impression that Lindley wanted to chat with strangers, not sleep with them. He couldn't have been more wrong. As a result, their relationship began to deteriorate. Apparently, things really went downhill after Lindley opened the spa and hired Ashley Shaw as the spa manager. She hires this woman, Ashley Shaw, to help her run the spa. Ashley Shaw is a business person. She um, used to work at Riversong with Lenny, that's how they know each other. And she went out to California for five months to do business stuff out there, and she came back. Ashley Shaw is more of an assertive, more of a go-getter. Lenny Rennick is sociable, easily led and more of a passive person. Lenny Rennick really likes to be happy, surrounded by, by, by lots of people. She's not really an order giver in that kind of thing. Ashley Shaw is quickly promoted to spa manager. Um, in, in, in that role, she sits at the front desk, she goes to the bank all the time, and she um, watches things. Lenny Rennick, begins to confide in Ashley Shaw problems between her and Ben. And the problems between her and Ben become pretty severe. Ben is not a violent person by nature, but he is extremely cold to her, and he begins touching her and begins doing things against her will while she's asleep. Attorney Hesseman began to tell the jury that Ashley Shaw was a terrible person who gave Lindley terrible advice. In fact, when Lindley explained to her that Ben wanted to have sex when she was tired or sleeping, it was Ashley's advice that she fix those problems by sleeping with other men. In the defense's case, it was Ashley who was responsible for all of Lindley's terrible decisions. 
Ashley even opened an Ashley Madison account for Lindley and forced her to meet men and sleep with them. Lindley was apparently easily impressionable and went along with all of Ashley's suggestions. In fact, she allegedly suggested that Lindley ask Ben for a separation and bring someone with her. They went through all the options for who Lindley could take with her, including the men she was sleeping with. She discarded that idea, along with asking her father or asking another friend. Ashley looked on the computer for Lindley's old, quote, meth addict, lazy, loser boyfriend, unquote, whom she hadn't seen or talked to in seven years. He's clearly the obvious choice, but first they had to find him. Ashley came to the rescue again by looking on a criminal database to find a last known address for Michael Humphrey. And Ashley Shaw is saying to herself and telling Lenley that if you don't have somebody to go with you, you'll never go through it because Lenley is just like a pendulum. She's going, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And she's just not in her right mind at this point. She doesn't know, if she, she doesn't know what Ben's going to do. She doesn't know if she's going to be homeless. She doesn't know how she's going to take care of the kids without Ben's income. She's overwhelmed and she's terrified. And she's just kind of going along with what Ashley Shaw is saying. What Lenley Rennick does not know is that in the seven years since she broke up with Michael Humphrey, Michael Humphrey has graduated into a violent, meth-addicted, career criminal. And when they go down and talk to him, he looks like the same old Michael Humphrey, but he's not the same Michael Humphrey. This man is a meth user, he is a meth dealer, he, has a, he is a felon, and he is violent. He tells one of the detectives that he tortures cats for fun. Apparently, Lindley, being her, quote, bubbly self, unquote, invited Michael up to the spa to have a couple of massages. They discussed the details of Michael allegedly going with Lindley to confront Ben and ask him for a separation. Lindley is being deceptive to Ben at this point, okay? Ben, she is, she loves Ben. So you're going to hear a lot of affectionate texts to Ben, and those are going to be portrayed as her being manipulative. She, that's not true. She loved Ben. She was infatuated with him. She wanted nothing more than this relationship to work. She even tells Ben, I want to go to therapy. However, what she in the back of her mind knows is we're not compatible. I don't want to live in the country on a reptile house. I want my own life. And she's back, and she's forth, and she's back, and she's forth, and while this is going on, her life is coming apart. So that's what, that's why there's all this conflict. She's not being deceptive. However, she is being deceptive about her going to separate with Ben. She's not planning a murder, she's planning a divorce. And so her and Michael Humphrey go out to this facility. Hesseman wanted the jury to believe that all of Lindley's flirty texts discussing their date night and the naked photos weren't her setting up an alibi or being manipulative. Rather, they were indicative of Lindley's ambivalence with leaving her marriage. Allegedly, Lindley was just a victim of everyone around her making bad decisions for her. Hesseman told the jury that while Lindley was planning a divorce, Michael was planning a murder. On June 8, 2017, the two of them headed from Ascensia Spa in Columbia, Missouri, 
to Montgomery County in Michael's old, unreliable car, a car that repeatedly had engine trouble. A few days before the murder, Lindley had to help Michael jumpstart his battery with her own car. Even though Lindley had a newer and reliable car, it allegedly never occurred to them to drive it to the divorce showdown. The defense insisted this wasn't to avoid Lindley being seen at home in the afternoon by a witness or passerby. In the defense's version of events, Lindley is only there to pick up clothes for herself and her children to take to her father's home after asking Ben for a separation. Except, of course, Lindley's father had no idea that Lindley and the children were coming to live with him. It was a detail she failed to mention to her father. Yet the defense didn't want the jury to see this as evidence of a calculated first-degree murder plot against Ben. The defense used the opening arguments almost as a closing statement, where they addressed all of the damaging evidence against Lindley in advance. This was so the jury would have alternative explanations in the back of their minds as the evidence was introduced. With this strategy in mind, they explained the reason that Lindley asked Ben earlier about the timing of the rat supplier wasn't to plan his murder and avoid a witness, but to make sure Ben wasn't distracted for their talk. According to Lindley, feeding day was usually hectic, and she wanted to make sure Ben was in a good mood for their divorce talk. As they drove up to the facility, Ben was just coming out of the door to take out the trash. And he's carrying a bag of trash. And Michael and Lindley get out of, get out of, get out of the car, and Lindley is fidgeting, she's nervous, she's scared, and she blurts something out like, this is Michael Hunter, he's my friend, he likes snakes, and you know, what you talk to him? And then she goes, oh, by the way, I'll take the trash, because Lindley is just kind of buying time. Her heart is pounding, her pulse, her pulse is racing, and she is just finding the words, she knows it's coming, and she's, and she's scared. And so she takes the trash. And while she takes the trash and walks to the dumpster, Michael Humphrey and Benjamin Rennick go into the house. And we don't know what happens with these two going into the house. They go into the house, and they go into this reptile house where there's Tupperware containers, floor to ceiling, of reptiles, snakes, inside of them. And Lindley Rennick throws the trash away, she comes in, and it's not clear what passes between Michael and Ben, but it's probably not good, because Ben knows Lindley is not being faithful, and Michael knows Ben is abusing her. So what's very plausible is Ben, being Ben, says something like, oh, you must be one of Lindley's boyfriends. Michael doesn't like that. Oh, you must be the person who's abusing Lindley. Something happens. A gun comes out. Lenley walks in, and she's in the corner, wringing her hands, staring at her shoes, sweating, <clears throat> trying to figure out what's going on, and a shot rings out. Lenley runs outside, more shots ring out, and she screams so loudly that a neighbor a half mile away, here, my name Mike Scarlett, hears her scream. Now, there will be testimony about this scream later in the trial. The neighbor will say he heard it at 6.30 p.m., and there was only one shot. Except, we know Ben was killed at 3.30 in the afternoon, and there were eight shots. During opening statements, defense counsel told the jury about the evidence he intended to introduce during the trial. However, he is under no obligation to do so, 
He can even create hypothetical scenarios about fictional conversations that may never have happened between Michael and Ben. Michael Humphrey testified during the prosecution's case-in-chief, and he had a very different description of the events that happened the day Ben Rennick was murdered. According to Hesseman, Michael allegedly told Lindley she was never there, and she would be the number one suspect. Therefore, she wasn't allowed to say anything to investigators. Lindley was allegedly in such shock that she didn't say anything until she got back to the spa, where Ashley told her that nothing happened, and she was perfectly fine. Allegedly, Lindley is in shock, and in some kind of fugue state that she can't remember what happened, and believed what Ashley said, that, quote, everything will be just fine, unquote. She believed it so sincerely that she forgot all those shots she heard, and assumed Ben was perfectly fine. In fact, she believed it so thoroughly that she continued to text Ben throughout the day, as if he were alive. Despite him being dead, she texted her excitement to him over their date night, insisting she couldn't wait to see him. Even when he failed to pick up the kids from daycare, she still assumed he was fine, and continued texting him and calling him her love. After a few unanswered messages, she told dead Ben that she was starting to worry. She was so worried she continued to text dead Ben, asking him to urgently get back to her. She was allegedly still in her catatonic fugue state when she remembered to call the babysitter to cancel their date night out of worry for dead Ben. She also had the wherewithal to text two of her current lovers. It's only after she picked up her children and found Ben's bloody body that she began to wonder what might have happened to him. She was so curious that she texted Michael and asked him to come by the next day, asking if he had time for another massage. Apparently, she was going to ask him what happened with Ben and why he was dead. She definitely wasn't calling him to get their story straight. She then went through her performance of laying her head on Ben's bloody body, hyperventilating while she waited for the first responder to catch her act. Hesseman leaves that part out of opening statements and tells the jury they should ignore all of the damning texts because they all have an innocent explanation. These damning texts, you're going to see, you know, you're going to read. She's texting Michael Huntley. She goes, what happened? And, you know, are you getting home okay? And in her mind, she is trying to convince herself that is okay. And she's sending out kind of these probing text messages, hoping that one of these people will get back to her and say Ben is okay. And, you know, he just called or something like that. However, when she gets to Kingdom City about halfway home, she gets a call from a school that says Ben had not picked up the kids and was supposed to pick up the kids. And she begins to really, really panic. Something else I want to say is that you're going to hear testimony that they, they concocted this scheme to get Ben to pick up the kids on his own. Ben called the spot. Then they, then Ashley Shaw responded because Lenny always left her phone at the front desk because Lenny did massages and spandex leggings. Lenny every single day left her phone at that front desk. That was not, that was nothing planned. It was her hat. And then Ashley Shaw, if Ben was being ornery, Lenny would say, just tell him I'm, just tell him I'm busy. I'll call him back. And so Ashley would always text Ben and say, hey, she's busy. Pretend. 
The fact that Ashley responded to Ben's texts as if she were Lindley, telling him to pick up the kids, wasn't because she was establishing an alibi. It's explained away as Lindley's habit of leaving her phone at the front desk and often asking Ashley to respond to Ben. He finished up by telling the jury that the person assigned to Ben's murder case was Trooper Faust, who was thorough and meticulous, and discovered quickly that Lindley and Michael were heading to Ben's facility to do something, quote, disagreeable, unquote. He told the jury it was clear that Lindley was lying, and they confronted her repeatedly. But Lindley was afraid to tell the truth, and she continued to deny her involvement. However, she eventually gave up the fact that she wanted a divorce from Ben. Hesseman stated that Lindley shifted her story with the divorce admission, but Trooper Faust didn't pick up on it. This was his chance to break her, and he didn't, which proved his incompetence in this investigation. They didn't arrest her, which is also their fault, because they aren't good enough interrogators. They asked her over and over, Was it you alone? Was it Michael alone? Was it you two together? But the small, fragile Lindley never broke, because they weren't very good at their job, which allegedly meant their investigation was compromised. Then Trooper Faust had a family tragedy and left the unit. That is when Trooper Schaefer took over the case. Years passed and Lindley started a relationship with Brandon Blackwell. What he leaves out is that Lindley and Brandon had met on Ashley Madison before Ben's murder and were already having an affair. Their relationship deteriorated to the point of Lindley taking out a restraining order against Brandon. He violated the restraining order 12 times and was arrested 5 times. Once he was served with a child custody hearing, troopers came to talk to him at the jail. As a result of those disclosures, they went to talk again to Ashley Shaw. She allegedly wasn't nervous because she didn't do anything other than, quote, cover up a murder, unquote, which is only a misdemeanor. She allegedly didn't change her story until after they threatened her. Ashley Shaw is told that if she does not change her statement, she is going to be put through the ordeal of being accused of the most serious crime that is in our system. And I want to point out that what Trooper Schaefer does are three things. He tells her what to say or indicates that she should say something incriminating against Lenny Rennick. He tells her that she will be punished if she does not say that. And he says, and he doesn't even know if what he wants her to say is true. And I want you to keep in mind that when you tell somebody they are going to be accused of a crime, that would work on anybody. So it's not like she's, Ashley Shaw is caving into the evidence against her or the weight of the evidence against her, or hey, Ashley, we have you on video. If you went to Tallahassee, Florida and picked somebody up and drove them to a police station and say, say this, or we're gonna just accuse you of a crime, well, they would say that just to avoid having to hire an attorney and having to sit in jail and having to deal with the anxiety of possibly being falsely accused. And they know what they're doing, and that's what they were doing. 
Hesseman alleged it was the incompetence of the new investigator, along with free immunity deals, that led to false confessions that perfectly matched up between Ashley Shaw, Rachel Hunt, and later with Michael Humphrey. He ends his opening arguments by telling the jury that their entire case is based on the lies from Ashley Shaw. To explain Rachel Hunt's corroborating testimony, he told the jury that Ashley and Rachel must have coordinated their stories. He ended by asking the jury to keep an open mind, and promised to give them five reasons at the end of the trial why it's impossible for Lindley Rennick to have murdered or conspired to murder her husband. And that's where we are going to end this episode. We will pick up in part two with the prosecution's case in chief, where they call one of Lindley's married lovers and end with the final verdict. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Trials. If you are interested in supporting our show, please recommend us to a friend, post about us on social media, or subscribe and consider leaving us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player of your choice.